and I was like brain dead after quals and I was like <laughs> I need to do something. <laughs> uh, quals. <laughs> what a dirty word. I was, I'm reading this uh, fantasy novel. I've, it's going to connect. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading this fantasy novel. This kid, he's in like this, you know, the university for magic or whatever. God, I sound like a nerd. Um, but he oh. describes this horrible process that all the students have to go through once a year and how it's, it leads so many students to, you know, suffer mental breakdowns and they have a, like a basic a mental ward on campus just to deal it with sounds, the fallout from this. And the process is literally, <laughs> you go up in front of a bunch of the professors and you answer oral questions <laughs> at the same time. I was like, huh. <laughs> farmhouse i'm jordan smart i'm alex hobbs and today we are joined by the illustrious john mern hello <laughs> john is uh coming to us from the the aero astro department at stanford university he is a member of the let me let me look across the hallway because that's where you work and, and read <laughs> off the actual name of your lab the stanford intelligent systems laboratory you know you, we're pretty sure the systems are intelligent and today we'll find out if the researchers are too it's so, hit or uh, it's hit or miss day to day or <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> by the end of the week i'm firing on half a brain cell maybe so yeah. i think i think yeah that's that's how it goes how, how big's the lab now oh yeah we have grown quite a bit as you can imagine the with all the ai hype every every class year brings in new prospective recruits from from cs from here from mecky so we're we're total students for probably verging on thirty. Ooh, wow. uh, PhDs. Wow. PhDs. We actually just did a count the other day. We have twenty two, I think, PhD <laughs> candidates. So My we're 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 pretty wow. big. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of us. Have you guys moved to Hunger Games style candidate selection now? Having people compete, you know, ten people come in. Two no, we we operate spots. on a bribery system. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not. Of course not. If Michael, if you're listening, that's that's not what I genuinely mean. Uh, no, I mean. I think Michael does a good job of selecting people that fit with the projects we have available, but um, it is harder and harder to select who to join because there's just so much interest and so uh, limited space, basically mm. limited bandwidth for people to help. So, do you guys have enough desks at this point? Or <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Um, I'm actually I moved to Jameson's old lab, so a lab down the hall. Since there's over, there's just a lot of people, so <laughs> we're we're trying to we're starting to take over the rest of the building. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so I guess let's uh. Let's get into your background a little bit. Where are you, where are you from originally, John? So originally, originally, I was born in New York, um, but I only was there till I was about three or four years old. Three years old, I don't know why I said, or four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was there till I was three, three, three and a half years old. Moved to Florida. I grew up for most of my life in South Florida, kind of just north of, northwest of Fort Lauderdale area, northwest of Miami for those that don't know that, that well. And then moved to Missouri for undergrad and was there for about seven years before coming here. Okay. Were you, were you like aerospace focused right from the start in undergrad or no I, to be frank i had very little idea what i wanted to do in undergrad i was i did a dual track in engineering and finance because oh, i had okay. literally had no idea um, i was pre-law for a brief period i thought i was gonna do patent law and then i learned how happy patent lawyers are so <laughs> I, I, I waved off on that but um no, i was like i was on the mock trial team for my first two years of college did engineering did business you know i in junior year i interviewed at a bunch of ibanks and then realized that probably wasn't for me so i had no idea i actually wound up doing mechie in undergrad with a robotics focus so by, by junior and senior year I, yeah, I knew i didn't want to do finance for a career 
and I kind of knew, technically speaking, I liked the robotics aspect. Don't know that I would have started at Mechie. Uh, looking back, I probably would have maybe done EE, but don't don't really regret it. So okay, yeah, I think I think Alex and I are both Mechies, so we're we're you know maybe in some of that that same boat. There's definitely trade offs to be made in choosing your path, especially that yeah. It it feels these days. It feels really early in your career, right out of high school, to be kind of choosing Absolutely. which field you wanna you wanna jump into. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a difficult choice. Yeah. Now looking back on it, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Like even coming into grad school, having worked for several years, I thought I was going to come into Stanford and do controls like classical, you know, classic feedback controls or advanced feedback controls, but feedback based type of controls. And that's what I wanted to do. I was absolutely sure mm-hmm. until I spent a month here and I was like, I don't want to do controls. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to, to have that same onus put on an 18 year old, you know, 18, 19 year old going into college, having no real experience for with high school, I mean, unless you have parents in the field or some way to access some greater insight, it's insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's some people that know, it seems like right off the bat what they want to do, but for the rest of us, it's uh, <laughs> you just got to make a decision and convince yourself it's the right one later down, later on, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, I even have, I, I grew up with a parent in the field and it was still a hard choice. It's really, it's real tricky. It almost feels to me sometimes like looking at, it, it feels like you came out of a maze and then realized that you thought there was kind of one track through and that was the only one that you could mm-hmm. see for yourself. And then you see how many people came different ways out of it. And, and you kind of realize that what you thought were really well-informed choices were maybe not even <laughs> the same ones you would make today if you had the choice to go back and do it again. No, and I think for me, at least, I always kind of overestimate the permanence of a choice. Like just because you choose to be engineering is an undergrad, you don't have to do engineering, right? Like every choice you make is never the last one until it is, but that's kind of, Never mind. <laughs> yeah, it's morbid. Oh boy. <laughs> so we're all gonna die one day. Uh, God, we got to we got to that part of the episode real fast yeah. this time. Yeah, it's inevitable. It always Engineer. happens. At some point. Engineers always. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nihilistic fatalism, my favorite. Uh, let's, let's. I guess let's back up from that that precipice. Is there were there any like passions or, or interests or hobbies that you had when you were a kid that have carried through since then, or, or have you just? Being completely buckled down into the professional life and development. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, definitely have hobbies. Definitely have maybe less less hobbies, more just kind of things I really enjoyed doing that were a little bit more academically minded. I really like public speaking, so I was really into debate in high school. You know, competed every tournament I could. Went to the states, nationals, all that stuff. And obviously, in engineering, that's not what engineers are typically known for. Um, no, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, ironically on an engineer's podcast uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, yeah so like i said before though i mean like i i kept i kept at that in a structured capacity for my first years of undergrad and then uh you know when i when i left undergrad and went to boeing you know did a lot of speaking things there i got involved with a lot of like the groups and and other things i enjoy it i i think it's an important skill so i've always practiced that but other than that i mean from childhood really i i guess i play music a little bit not at any sort of <laughs> very skilled <laughs> level but just just for fun so you know i play play a bit of music still do it from time to time but obviously the more you know deeper into the phd you go the, the older i guess i get at least the less time i seem to have to devote to that and the more i focus on things that are a little bit more closely related to to my research into my work that i'm doing okay i kind of have a, a follow-up question about when you were talking about sort of the areas you grew up you know a question ago did you see uh did you have any sort of favorites in in different <laughs> areas you've lived in because I've, I've lived in a few areas now and I always find it interesting whenever you move somewhere new to see what what it's like there. Yeah, um, well, I like it here. Uh, it's, it's nice. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's I, a good I'll thing. say. I, I mean, I had a lot of fun in in St. Louis, but that was a unique time in life, right? So I, I'm undergrad, which I really didn't experience St. Louis all that much. I was in a bubble for undergrad for most of it, but undergrad's a fun time. So it's easy to kind of romanticize the place because of the experience. And my first few years of, out of work, you know, the first time having a salary 
really having true full adult freedom. So that was that was also very enjoyable, but kind of objectively, St. Louis wasn't my favorite place. I had a lot of fun there. I have a lot of friends and fam, well, not family, people feel like family there. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, for the geography alone, really like California, really like the city. South Bay is a bit um, suburban for my taste. <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit uh, isolated from, from everything, but you know, you get the mountains, you got beaches, you got, uh, you know, California all yeah. around you. So can't really complain about that. I, I did briefly live, I did, I did a term abroad in the UK and that was pretty cool too. Oh, really? Yeah. Even so when you were an undergrad coming from Missouri? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was like, let's, let's do something different. So that was, that was really cool. Lived in an old, like little English style flat, mm-hmm. uh, bunch of other people it was you know lived behind a sheep pasture so i would go jogging through a sheep pasture (laughs) it was like parting the red sea of sheep every morning it was actually pretty cool (laughs) be careful and check the sneakers when you get back (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) but um yeah that that was that was probably like that was like a vacation though too so it's the same thing it's like the experience is really good but i also really enjoyed it you know being there it was very immersive you know everybody was at the university so where where did you where did you study abroad at uh oxford cool yeah, oh. did Trinity term there. I've heard that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a very different experience than undergrad in the U.S. Yeah, I think it, it, I really liked it. Yeah, oh, that's good to hear. It's good to hear somebody enjoyed undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I think well, I, that's that's one of the things that really shocks me because me and Alex both moved from New Jersey and you came from Missouri, and sometimes it's hard to attribute like which changes are because of becoming an adult, shift in circumstances and location, and which are just down to grad school versus undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are there are a lot of significant differences that just come from being a graduate student as opposed to an undergrad, even more than just depending on you know, where you are in the country. Oh, oh, for sure. And I think having time, having worked a period in between, so like you guys know already, um, I spent about three and a half years uh, in Phantom Works in, in Missouri. So I worked a full-time job. I think it really changes your perspective on school, unlike undergrad where you're kind of expected to go through it. And you know you're also expected to party and, and have fun. Grad school, paying my way through it, it's an investment that I'm choosing to make for myself. I'm foregoing a salary for that. So I'm much more serious about it, and I'm much more aware of the fact that what I put in is what I get out. Mm-hmm. So I think the mentality t- that I have towards school and toward education, toward learning, uh, is much more deliberate, I think, than, than undergrad, which was, you know, I was content to follow the curriculums laid out before me. And I didn't have a lot of wiggle room to pick electives and stuff yeah. either oh, so yeah. that, that helps as well yeah I, I think i think a big part of the change is just uh kind of the realization of what it can do for you having gone through like i said a few just a few years of a professional career realizing what a little bit more expertise you know how far that can really go it, it's a good motivator so i guess I, I i feel like at least in my experience when i was at lockheed the perception was largely that if you wanted that in in the sense of develop a little bit more expertise to kind of take you to the next level a lot of people will go and do their masters mm-hmm. in that sense what made you want to go like the next step and go full phd uh, i'm not i'm still asking myself that, <laughs> to be I, I i i'm i'm i absolutely sure this is the right choice for me I'll say part, partly uh, it's the same reason I left Boeing in the first place. I, I liked my time at Boeing. I did some really interesting things, met some great people. But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, you're still working for a corporation. You're still working on executing a lot of times somebody else's vision. You might have a small part of that vision that is your own, but you're executing somebody else's vision. I've always wanted to do something for myself that was my own. It's what drove me to leave and to strike out here. You know, I, it wasn't so I can advance my career at Boeing. It was so I could gather the tools necessary to strike out on my own in, in the real world. You know, I thought I was going to need a master's to do that. But coming here, you know, after, by the time the master's was over, I was like, man, I feel like I just started learning. Yeah. 
you know, there's there's so much out there that just to learn what it is you want to do, you have to learn this such a breadth of material. Even in a specialized field like aerospace, right, you have to learn fluids, structures, dynamics, controls, AI, math, you know, all this stuff. And then you start to feel, realize, okay, I think this is what I want to do, mm-hmm. for me at least. So I think by the time the PhD, but by the time that decision point was reached, whereas, you know, do I leave with the master's or do I continue on with the PhD? I really knew, like, really to be an expert and to really have a chance at, at doing something meaningful, I need more. I, I'm not, I'm not equipped well enough yet in terms of the knowledge and the skills that I have. And I'll never feel like I'm done. Uh, Just, yeah, I have mastered this field entirely. <laughs> yes, I am. I am the master here, and yeah. I am done with the learning. All <laughs> the science is done. I know all the science. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's it. I just wanted to continue. Plus, you know, you meet the people here, and they're world class. Uh, really, I mean, the people in my lab are world class researchers. It's nice to be able to like work with them and interact with them day to day, and it's just very enriching. Something else I don't think you get at a company per se. It's just a different type of interaction. You know, here your your work is for the sake of knowledge, and people are eager to share that, mm. which is really nice. Whereas at a company, you always have the kind of a deadline or something else looming over, and there's kind of the undertones of well, this, is, this better be for a deliverable of some type. Yeah. Um, you know, enrichment is not the bottom line, whereas at a university setting it is. So I, I really like that, and I didn't expect to. I, I consider myself much more of a of an impact-driven, kind of objective-driven person. But once you get the freedom to work on a research project, kind of a little bit more your own design, and really kind of understand the impact that it can have on the field and the impact that that field can then have on the world, the effects aren't as immediate as designing a new airplane, per se. You get the sense it's, it's a ripple that ripples over a much wider pond, I guess. That was cheesy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think that's that's cheesy, but fair. And yeah, I, I think a surprising number of people. In, in fact, I, I would bet it's it's a strong majority, if not near everybody, do make the choice to go to do the PhD for non-commercial, non-professional motives. Like there are very few people who are here because I want this job and the mm-hmm. requirement says I have to have a PhD and I'm just trying to punch that button. I don't think you'd yeah. ever get through a PhD if that was your mentality. Probably it's not. So, I mean, <laughs> whenever I hear professors talk about the number of hours they're expecting to work on something, I'm like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> it's it's going to be twice that. Yeah. Yeah. So. so given that motivation, I get the sense at least that it might have been hard to pick a real focus to do your your thesis and to focus your your researching on. So can I ask like what what did you or at least what currently is occupying most of your attention? <laughs> um so I, yeah, that, that attention, man, that's that's a tough one for me. <laughs> I, I have uh, I always I always for as long as I can remember, I've always had to wear, you know, two or three different hats at a given time, you know, doing two or three different things. So right now I'm, I have my main research focus, which I'll get into in a sec. And then I have a startup I've been working on. Everybody out here has a startup. So I, yes. I, I hate to, I, I don't even like mentioning it. Uh, <laughs> but um, so research wise, I mean, our lab focuses on decision systems for various applications, mostly autonomous vehicles of some type or another, airplanes, cars, spaceships, et cetera. I like... You know, given that I'm impact motivated, I think I, I, I'm attracted to the projects that have a really broad, more fundamental impact as opposed to like a, an application of a method to a particular problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that can solve a very particular impression problem. Almost the opposite. I'm almost going the opposite way I did with my career where I, I was designing systems for very particular problems. Now it's kind of the other direction of I want to do things that are very broad in general and kind of impact a lot of different things, maybe in a smaller way, but have a broad, broad reach. So what I'm focusing on right now is trying to deobfuscate AI a bit, you know, make it a little bit more easy for people to interact with AI in a intuitive way. So 
and, and, and vice versa, right? I want the AI to be able to interact with the person in an intuitive way. So what we're focusing on doing is creating AI agents that can watch and interact with the human and interpret kind of what the human is trying to do. So if you watch somebody trying to like cook, for example, by observing a person cooking, I as a human being can probably say, okay, they're probably baking. I can see them getting eggs and flour. They're probably baking. Okay, they're getting chocolate. They're probably making a dessert. Okay, now they're getting a certain type of tin. Okay, it's, they're making cupcakes. I can mm-hmm. kind of make those hierarchical inferences about um, a person's intent and then therefore by making inferences on their intent, I can make more intelligent predictions of their behavior and maybe then I can go help them out. Okay, I see they're getting the cupcake panel. Let me go get the, the butter for them. You know, We want to imbue AI with that similar sort of, of capability. So we're not trying to control a system. We're not trying to um, really do anything to interact with the environment per se, but really just give a way to easily train in what we call an unsupervised fashion. Mm-hmm. So without telling the agent that the, this is my intent at every time I change intent, because a lot of times we don't even realize we're doing it, right? When we do tasks that are relatively simple to us, like dialing a phone, I pick up the phone, I got to hit the button, I got to dial the number, so on and so forth, right? Those are all subroutines to a program. And when we train a neural network, when you train an AI system using deep methods, which are you know, neural networks today, you really don't understand what's going on inside that neural network. It's really a black box, right? So you put something in, you train it to get something out, but you really don't look at what's going on in those intermediate layers. So you don't really know what the network thinks per se, which which opens you up to, you know, limits the usefulness in a lot of applications. You know, if I wanted to use this as an intelligent assistant or in a human collaborative environment, as a human being, I, I want to be able to ask my partner what they're planning to do, what they're thinking, what their assumptions are. And you can't do that with a black box system. Uh, it also opens you up to adversarial situations or other corner cases where there's really no way to validate it's not going to do something crazy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? So so our idea is to, like I said, in an unsupervised manner, be able to train an agent so that it can do all these things, but also that I can query it and say, what are your beliefs on this type of state right now? And it'll tell, it'll give me a simple vector that I can interpret that says, I'm 90% sure that you're in this state. Mm. And in that way, you kind of have a nice interpretable system that's more natural to interact with. You can have more confidence as a human operator uh, of what the system's doing, what it's thinking. And I can put, then mathematically, I can put bounds on how that system can evolve. So I know that if you're at 90% right now, you're not going to be at 2% the next update. So Mm -hmm. I can kind of have a little bit more confidence in how you're going to behave over a broader period of time. So that's that's okay. my research focus, yeah. Okay. So it sounds it sounds more like sort of a information a different way of interpreting or, or understanding an improvement on the understanding of the information rather than exactly an explanation of how the, those conclusions were reached. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think I think if you layer enough hierarchy on it, you can kind of see the re- what what's resembles a reasoning process a little mm-hmm, bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, yeah, I think our, our initial goal is just to just get a, more of a glimpse into what's going on. Exactly like you said, you know, eventually when you whenever you operate on a neural network, you're operating in these ridiculous embedding spaces. And just chopping those up into a way that I can understand it is a big improvement. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. it, it sounds to me like it would, it would be hard to do that and maintain the capability of the <laughs> network. Almost. Like uh, kind of the reason neural networks are almost built as black boxes is because they are able to tackle problems in ways that we don't see an obvious way to just mm-hmm. write out a set of commands, right? And so to a degree, it, it's almost like there there almost has to be something going on in that network that is non-obvious to a human interpreter. Yeah. I think I think we'll never understand how you do the really complex mappings from like vision space to some sort of vector kinematic space, for example, right? Mm-hmm. 
put it said another way, like if we're if we're watching um, the evolution of an aircraft's trajectory on a computer screen, just a visual RGB pixels, right? A neural network can figure out a way to map those pixel values to numerical vectors that that tell me the Which airspeed. Way the plane's going, you know, yeah, exactly, yeah. and then I can make predictions on it. To understand all the mathematical operations that are going into that, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, but you can you can enforce abstractions, abstractions being just you know data concepts at certain layers of your network in order to force it to be interpretable in a certain way. There's a lot of good work out of a, a group in Berkeley led by a guy named Peter Abiel. Actually, is it Peter Abiel? No, it's Sergey Levin's group. Yeah, I think so. Edit this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good work out of Berkeley on using end-to-end policies for robotic manipulators or robotic arms, right? Mm. One of the big conclusions they drew, and it's, it's kind of obvious based on what Jordan just said, that if you train a policy end-to-end, it's often going to perform better. The downside of that is you have no idea what it's going to do. It's completely black boxed, no way to interpret it, and it's often much more difficult to train. You're going from pixel space to servo yes. motor controls, right? Yes. That's that's a lot of space to explore. Yeah. So one of the typical approaches to doing this is to introduce abstractions, like chop up my graph into modules and make each module do, do something uh, okay. that's more predictable. But the problem with that is that you have what le- what, what people refer to as um, leakiness, right? When you enforce an abstraction, we're enforcing it to map all this data. Yeah, you're into making this, it think like a human or right, like a human kind of exactly. wants it to think. We assume that this is the data you're going to need downstream, so we're just going to make you retain that and throw everything else away. Yeah. Not always the right move, right? So they do a lot of good work in kind of bridging that gap between modularizing your policies and then doing it and, and still being able to do it end-to-end so you don't have that leak problem. I- I don't know if this is going to make it into the episode, but I think you just solved a major problem that I'm dealing with in my research. <laughs> there you go. Happy to help. Yeah, I mean, neural nets are, are very powerful, very misunderstood. and um, They're, they're actually my... nice guys? or <laughs> Very powerful and very misunderstood. This, yeah. sound, this does very much sound like a villain introduction, to be <laughs> honest. It does. No, it's, it's Batman at the end of the Dark Knight, you know? Oh, They're God. the hero we need right now, not the hero we deserve. I never remember which order that is. I don't is. either. <laughs> I don't remember the order either. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> yeah, no, they, I mean, they're over-applied. You know, everybody sees them. I think there's a lot of pressure from management and from research funding to, hey, you know, you got to use AI for this somehow. And people just go, okay. And there's a lot of tools that are wonderfully accessible very easy to use, but also very easy to misuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you don't need a neural network nine times out of ten where I see people using them. Yeah. It's like there's no reason to do that. You're you're adding way more, you know, way more complication than you. You're just adding heartburn for yourself. But chances are they have a manager going, you should use some AI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think the the charitable interpretation of what's going on is that this is a relatively new technology obviously a lot of the techniques that we're using go back to the 50s or earlier mm-hmm. but we're ne- it's now gotten to a point where you can in six months learn to kind of apply some techniques and so everyone is kind of trying this new hammer on some nails that have been stuck up for a very long time yeah and some of them it, yeah it's not going to knock them down but some of them it might knock them down and it's it's kind of worth to have this kind of shotgun approach to Try try this new thing on everything we haven't been able to figure out, and maybe it'll work on some stuff. Maybe it won't work on other stuff. But I think yeah, the, that's kind of the charitable assumption that this is maybe time being spent well. The uncharitable assumption is that this is just buzzword hype, and everyone can throw yeah. AI or call call 
And yeah, we we talked about this, I think, before we, we started recording, but it's gotten to the point now where you see people doing some very basic statistical techniques and mm-hmm. call giving them special names to make it AI-ish, even if you could oh, yeah. be doing that in Excel. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to say that people that try using these techniques for their problems are are necessarily doing anything shady or anything like that. I think there are plenty of people that want to try it for the sake of trying it, you know, and, and that's totally acceptable. But it's I would be remiss if I didn't like comment on the fact that this these are not new techniques. I think you already alluded to the fact that neural networks have been around for decades now. Mm-hmm. And they're they're they just happen to be in fashion right now and they happen to be very usable because of the commensurate growth in GPU and other processing technology that allows them to be trained efficiently. If we didn't have the, the processing throughput to train these million parameter models, we wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't be doing it. We'd still be using Gaussian processes and mixed mixed other, you know, so-and-sos and specialized models for everything. But yeah, I mean, I think as a result of the over, inf- I think caution against is the over uh, reliance on neural networks as a universal approximator can cause you know, other probably more viable methods to be neglected. It's just a seductive term right to just say this is a universal approximator there's no reason it shouldn't work on your problem yeah <laughs> given the data yeah. right neural networks are data data hungry yeah. so it's a tough thing to to overcome in a lot of domains yeah you know we see it in google you see it in video games because google has all the data in the world and video <laughs> games you can create it for free so yeah you know, once you get into something like aircraft <laughs> yeah. you better have a damn good simulator darn good do i have to no yeah. you better have yeah. a darn good simulator uh, <laughs> to <laughs> To be able to, uh, you know, to, you know, so you don't crash your aircraft trying to trying to do your exploration and your yeah. RL policy. So, uh, yeah, there are definitely limitations to it. Um, in academia, it's one thing. In academia, there's there's usually not really much ulterior motive. But but industry, it's it's a little scary dealing with the VC scene here too. Now it's uh, yep, you see it a lot. You see it a lot of people just saying things because they know that's the right thing to say and not really knowing what yeah. they're saying. Say say the words green AI crypto. <laughs> Trying to think distributed. What else? Uh, yeah. Oh, cyber physical security. Oh my god, real big. Uh, blockchain. Oh. Yeah, big data. Yeah. Big data. Oh, oh yeah, I, I feel. I feel like big data is already like behind the oh, curve, yeah. right? Like I that's mean, that's like two, three years back. That was the the buzzword. I mean, I, like, cloud was the buzzword at one oh point. Too. Yeah. We're doing it on the cloud. Uh, yeah, now it's AI. Um, it's it's kind of frightening to think I'm getting my PhD in a buzzword. Uh, <laughs> Like, is this a fad that's going to be, you know, am I, am I getting my, if I get my PhD in like Shasta, like is, this is a, hopefully not a passing fad. Uh, I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of value that's being created, a lot of amazing work being done. But I, I just, you see a lot of pop side reporting that totally misrepresents the state of the world. And yeah. I, I'd like to see a little bit more credit being paid to the, to the real diligent researchers out there that are doing really good work. Yeah. Um, it, it, it would be nice because it would make it easier to find those people's work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. There's a lot out there, so yeah. definitely hard to sift through it all. Yeah. I guess that's, cool. you know, that's why we get paid these fat stacks of money at grad school. Because that's <laughs> definitely a thing that happens. <laughs> you been getting fat stacks of money? <laughs> uh, I think, think this is the, the time to take a break. Yeah, but before we go, uh, before we cut to break, uh, is there anything else you wanted to promote maybe any conferences coming up that you, you you're going to or any 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 uh anything like that no <laughs> oh, perfect. all right let's go to break let's go <laughs> Hey everyone, Alex Hobbs here with your mid-episode break. I'll try and keep it short for you today, but it's good to be back with you guys today. 
in this mid-episode break talking to you. I missed you. I hope you missed me. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening once again, and thank you to John Mern for being on the episode. We're always lucky to have our guests on, and John's an amazing guy, and we were really lucky to have him, and and he talked about something that's always very close to my heart and very interesting for me, uh, which was was AI, and we'll, we'll see also what we talk about in the second half right after this. Thank you also to Andy G. Cohen for his music off the Free Music Archives. We have Just a Blip off the album Through the Lens and Scramby Eggs off the album Layers, featured in edited formats throughout this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about us or, you know, sharing our, uh, or, or following us in some way, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Farmcast. And, and if you are interested, you can also go to thefarmcast.com. If you really enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed the series so far, please tell your friends about us. We don't have too many other ways to sort of share ourselves with the world, but we are always interested in getting more ears if people are interested in listening. Thank you again so much for listening. It means the world to me and Jordan. We will be back with you guys hopefully in two weeks. We, we really want to keep that schedule. We know we've been a little off and on. We want to try and keep that schedule, but, you know, life can be interesting, and, and Jordan's in grad school, and, and obviously we have plans outside of this, but we are doing our best to sort of keep that schedule. We know we've gone a little bit longer than two weeks, maybe two and a half recently, but, we're, but we'll, we'll try and keep those in the future. So it's, it's great talking to y'all, and uh, I'll let you get back to the episode. Thanks again. Bye-bye. here in the second half and we're going to talk about in this case india's asat test and how the debris basically created from that and and possible risks for the international space station so i've only given this a a, a cursory review jordan do you want to fill us in a little bit more of the details on this yeah i mean to kind of set the stage space has been largely for a number of reasons international geopolitical reasons technological reasons has been largely de-weaponized for most of the history that we've been going into it. However, a couple years ago, I I forget when the first one was, but people became concerned, obviously, that spy satellites flying over over countries have been basically untouchable observation platforms for a long time now. And we are now getting good enough at satellite controls that although the Outer Space Treaty bans nuclear weapons platforms in space, you could put some pretty good conventional weapons platforms into orbit. And so nations began developing capabilities to launch missiles capable of destroying those satellites in orbit. The U.S. has done it. China's done it. I think Russia's done it is the third one. And now India is the fourth nation which has demonstrated a capability to launch a weapon from the surface. Essentially, I think India, the U.S. mounted one on an F-15. A lot of these have been fighter-launched missiles, but capable of making contact with a satellite destroying it effectively. The problem, or at least some of the criticism that's been levied at India, is that the way they did it was reckless. And the debris created by the strike is now in orbit at what would be hypersonic velocity if it were in an atmosphere, and is on a trajectory such that there are potential collision risks with the International Space Station, other satellites in orbit, just debris in space has been kind of a growing problem and this was done with flagrant disregard for the risk associated with that it sounds like recently they've talked a bit about how much of an actual risk this is to the international space station there is 
I believe they, they said the percentage chance of, of some debris hitting it had gone up, but it was something, some 40 something percent. I, I Now I don't know how low that chance was before, so I don't know how yeah. significant that increase is. It sounds like most of these pieces of debris will burn up on sometime in the next year or so, basically, and, and not be an issue long term. But it still becomes an issue of how do you enforce better actions in the future? Because th- this shouldn't be a, a frequent problem. We already have a problem with orbital debris in, in space, and it's only going to get worse. How can you enforce that between different countries who are just want to do what they want? You know what I mean? I mean, I think the short answer is you can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, there's no, wasn't really a military action against anybody. Um, so you really can't go that route not that we would want to with india in the first place or any any of these other countries and and diplomatically speaking i mean space is the wild west there is some regulation like jordan mentioned with nuclear platform nuclear proliferation there's also some anti-space warfare regulation in terms of like tampering with one another's satellites but beyond that i mean you get space and you get the deep sea and both (laughs) of those places are are pretty much you know free-for-all zones so we don't have a lot of international and i'm not a lawyer obviously thankfully we don't have a lot of uh, precedent for, you know, regulating space. And I think that common sense law says, hey, don't blow up stuff that's going to put our people and our assets in danger. Yeah. But in terms of punitive measures, you know, if nothing comes of this strike and nothing's harmed and nobody's hurt, I don't see regulations changing from it. You know, we are a very reactive international community. And we, we, we typically only see landmark, you know, international accords being signed when something horrible happens. And not, not even always then. So... <laughs> In short, I, I don't know that this is going to change anything, is my opinion, but I, I do think it, it does. We've, we've seen a quickening of the kind of, I think, actions that are signaling the, the weaponization and the recognition of space as a physical combat layer, a physical combat domain in warfare. And that's, that's pretty scary to me, considering how vital space is to every part of our society. Yeah, to to a degree, it reminds me of that period in the the 50s where there were just regular nuclear tests happening and in very much the same way that a lot of people are speculating and and India is all but saying that this was posturing and just demonstrating capability Mm -hmm. to demonstrate capability. And obviously there are significant but not necessarily world-changing externalities you know like fallout and there was always risk that nuclear material would be carried on winds even if it's done out in the middle of the pacific ocean Mm -hmm. and it took you know dozens and dozens of tests and eventually you know hydrogen weapon tests that were you know people were like is this going to ignite the atmosphere like is is this going to cause permanent damage to the the biosphere on earth before we got to really nuclear arms limitation treaties and kind of walking back from that edge and satellite weapons and spit like we're we're starting it's it's you if you ever look at like exponential curves there's always that like that one moment where it starts to tick up and starts to look look non-linear mm-hmm. this to me feels like because india is reaching to become a great power on, on the world but it's not i would not say is quite at that status yet the fact that they felt a need to demonstrate space weaponization capabilities suggests to me that everyone who is worried about projecting power and projecting capability in the 21st century is going to see physical space weaponry as an essential component of war fighting and nation defending capability going forward. And yeah, like there there's a there's a whole lot that you can do up there that people people haven't you know been talking about and discussing and debating for decades like you would maybe want to when a new avenue of warfare starts to open up. 
Yeah. I mean, we all we all laughed. Well, I laughed when I heard about the Space Force. Mm. Um, but it is a real, like I said, I think it's going to become a real theater. I don't think it'll be manned people with laser guns or, or any sort of manned endeavor. But at least at a cyber-physical level, space combat is... Real. I mean, real, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, real is a good way to say it. At a physical level, though, that's that's when it really gets scary. That's when the damage is irreversible. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, things like GPS, GLONASS, um, all these things that are vital to not only like communication of information, but really conveyance of people and, and goods. And the entire global economy runs on GPS, right? I mean, mm-hmm. global timing, everything. It, it, one irresponsible action, intentional or otherwise, can disrupt all of that. Yeah. I mean, that the effects of that would be catastrophic be worse than any terrorist attack you could you know domestic terrestrial i should say terrorist attack you can imagine the economics effects of that the economic effects of knocking out one gps satellite i think would be tenfold right and that's a real threat you know if i'm if i'm an asymmetric player on the world stage if i'm if i am somebody that wants to project my power or to increase my bargaining position at some sort of international negotiation table if i know i have the capability to knock out a gps satellite i might mention that right yeah I mean, that's that is it, it's hard to draw a parallel because mm-hmm. infrastructure strikes have obviously been an important part of war fighting going back to Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually that that required you to cross a border um, and, <laughs> right. and, and you could kind of fortify your borders and kind of preserve it. And there there were there was not a an ability to suddenly and and cripplingly disable your adversaries infrastructure in an instant. Dependence upon satellites kind of puts you in kind of a vulnerable position mm-hmm. where you have now have things just floating up in space that if your enemy can shoot them down, like there's not there's no border check for for an anti-satellite weapon. For sure. And, and, and there's really no distinction between an offensive and a defensive weapon in space also. If I want to put something up, if, mm-hmm. I, if I as a, as a military power wanted to put up a weaponized asset in space in order to defend against missile strikes... There's no reason you couldn't turn that and use that as an offensive weapon against yeah. other spaceborne assets. So it creates that type of you know mounting of arms situation you really want to avoid. Anytime you have an amassing of, of a certain type of arms in a very sensitive arena like that leads to bad things. You know, how many of us have heard any number of stories about how we were a, a minute away from distri- you know, worldwide nuclear warfare because one guy did something stupid, right? There have been so so many stories of that from the Cold War era and in the space era. I mean. The, it, I, I don't yeah. see it being any different, you know, and you're not going to have the human cost of a nuclear war, but you will have some human cost, and you will certainly have an economic cost. So I think avoiding that's hard. And I don't know what the solution is. You know, I mean, it's like, even if it's not nuclear, a weaponized platform in space is instant Cuban missile crisis. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Because and remember, like the the I, I think it must have been nuclear tipped, but but before Russia put weapons in Cuba, we had put missiles in Turkey, mm-hmm. right? And and actually, I'm not even sure if the, if the missiles in Turkey were nuclear, but it was just you have put strike-capable weapons within range of things that we depend on. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you can put a weaponized platform in space, that is true for every country on the planet. You have it. You have an immediate worldwide Cuban missile crisis. And the fact that nations see seem to see, at least based on India's, the way they've been talking about this, seem to see just the 
demonstration of that capability because obviously like this is an anti-satellite weapon and it is not in and of itself a weaponized space platform Mm -hmm. but it seems to suggest that they are ahead of time signaling that they will have the capability to destroy any weaponized space platform it seems to suggest well any space platform yeah yeah that's the scary part right that's that's what escalates tensions i am we should we should really train a neural network for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I think they tried that, um, and we got a movie series out of it called Terminator. <laughs> it feels like the drumbeat leading up to an event, right? Like if, if you read it in a history book, like there's always you know no single one of these events look like a huge thing, but it, you know if you look back to World uh, War One, it's got the yeah. craziest story. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like you look back to the lead up to world war one there was just you know, weird things going on in the balkans and it was a little tense and you know p- things were building up and people were worried it was going to get worse but not so worried that you know there needed to be a drastic intervention oh yeah and the the lead up to world war Two, you know like you had the great depression and you had this emergence of populist right wing and and you know the bolshevik revolution <laughs> all, all the like all these tumultuous things going on admittedly a little bit more of a red flag yeah <laughs> a literally red flag <laughs> um <laughs> And, and, and you know, then the counterpoint is we have the Cold War, which looks like the world's biggest lead up to to World War Three, and it never quite kicked off. Yeah. But now this looks like we we've you know turned a corner to a degree, and now there's a a drumbeat of of lead up to a potentially catastrophic event in space. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm I'm hoping I'm hopeful that it it, it all turns out to be a kind of just a power posturing move. Like, yeah. hey, we're we're significant. We all know we can do this, and let's let's all talk like grownups now. Which I, I am hopeful. I think we're in, despite you know tensions at certain geographic regions. I think we are at a we're in an era of unprecedented global cooperation. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at even even U.S. Russia, which are obviously not uh, not the model of, of hospitable relations between <laughs> countries. You know, we still have some economic ties with Russia, with with every country in the world. That you see a lot more cooperation and collaboration on dealing with all sorts of problems. That you know, I, I am hopeful that this can be resolved and that. This is a posturing move, and that you know these weapons are never deployed, and some good can come of it, right? I mean, if 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 space agencies are getting funding to study these weapons, maybe some of that technology and research can yeah. be, can lead to space debris removal systems and satellite repair, auto, you know, autonomous satellite repair, and other things that can do some real good for the world. A lot of things have come up that way. It's not it's not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like for all that for all that the Apollo programs were civilian led and in and of themselves had non military aims, they were still very much missile development programs oh yeah and we got we got integrated circuits out of it and a whole bunch of other things that came came out of that that program so Uh, we got the internet out of darpa right yeah yeah you know (laughs) so it does some bad things too Uh. (laughs) (laughs) no but i mean i'm optimistic as well it's i think you mentioning the economic factors john this very very strong incentive over a long period of time that that's kind of really kept everyone more cooperative than they have been at any other point in in the past and and there's obviously a lot of bumps in the road but when you depend on others for your whole country's success or or, or significant parts of it then you 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 want them to succeed if you don't mm-hmm. you know always want them to fully succeed for sure, <laughs> and, and the nice thing about something like GPS versus so a, a space weapon versus a terrestrial base weapon, uh, even a WMD, uh, there is no way to attack one nation 
with a space-based weapon. If you spy satellites and national assets ex- accepted, if I, if you take out GPS, yes, that's an American-made and American-managed system. You take out GPS, you are hurting the economy of every major country in the world. Yeah, you're pissing off everybody, yeah. basically, right? I mean, international trade comes to an ass-grinding halt. Yeah. So, you know, the 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 idea and and the nice thing about these systems too is that they're not rogue element accessible. Like you'd have to have a true rogue <laughs> yeah. state, right? You can't have you're not going to have a terrorist organization building a homegrown satellite missile system, right? Uh yeah. it's just like you don't have terrorist organizations with nuclear programs, right? They're just too advanced, they're too inaccessible. So that that idea of an asymmetric non-state actor having access to this is gone. So the only other real plausible threat for somebody doing something like that is a rogue state actor you know somebody like a north korea that does a lot of posturing like this but even north korea that we've seen posture countless times over the past decade has never done anything outside of its own borders in the last in last however many years right so again hopeful and if they were and if they were to do it they're not just going to piss off the u.s they're going to piss off china they're going to piss off russia and piss off everybody around them i I don't see that i'm hopeful it's not it never comes to that so yeah so Scared but hopeful. I feel like that's yeah. yeah. I feel like that is a good metaphor for grad school as well as international geopolitics. <laughs> we went full circle. You, yeah. you you went back to the beginning of that. Good job. Good job. Uh, yeah. Try. I try. Uh, that you think that's a good uh, wrapping up point, then, guys? I think so. I, th- I think this has been our most uh, in depth discussion <laughs> of uh, the implications of recent events. Yeah. Technological yeah. development. Thank you.